Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This podcast is part of a mini-series co-hosted with Susie Allegre, International Human Rights Barrister, Associate at Doughty Street Chambers and Research Fellow at the University of Roehampton. We're grateful to the Office of the OSCE Representative on Freedom of the Media for a grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression project to support this series. Today we're going to be talking about the difference between freedom of opinion and freedom of expression and how it impacts on social media. We're going to be talking to Evelyn Aswad, who's a professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Law, and she's an expert on the right to freedom of expression and the right to freedom of opinion. And she's also on the Facebook Oversight Board, but she's speaking today in a personal capacity. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You can join the criminal justice and human rights pathway or the politics and human rights pathway and deepen your knowledge and understanding of their challenging interactions, as well as being in an environment that champions social justice. If you want the show notes or to support this podcast by giving a few pounds a month, then please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Evelyn, thank you so much for being with us today. I know that you've worked a lot over the years on the right to freedom of expression in international human rights law, Uh, but we often forget other aspects of the right, like the right to form and hold our opinions and the relevance of freedom of information for forming and holding opinions. And I know that this is something that you've been focusing on recently, and I was wondering if you could just give us a brief outline of what the right to freedom of opinion entails in international human rights law, and also how it came about and how the drafters of instruments like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights uh, thought about freedom of opinion. Sure, Uh, and thank you both for having me on your program. So the protection for freedom of opinion comes from Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is one of the foundational treaties in the UN human rights system and part of the International Bill of Human Rights. And uh, essentially, the first clause of Article 19 provides, everyone shall have the right to hold opinions without interference. After that clause, there are other clauses on freedom of expression. Um, and you, you see just from reading them, the, the, the difference between freedom of opinion and freedom of expression, which is often overlooked. Freedom of expression protects our right to communicate our ideas, our thoughts, our opinions with others. But freedom of opinion is about protecting our ability to think those thoughts, to have those opinions, and to hold them inside that sacred space inside our head. So freedom of expression, that communication right, can be limited under certain circumstances for public interest objectives. But freedom of opinion by the own by its own terms under the treaty cannot and i would also highlight the the phrasing of of this right that it cannot uh, that you have the right to hold opinions without interference that without interference just underlines how profound and intimately tied it is to our basic human dignity to be able to think thoughts within our head without interference uh, and without having that right balanced against other societal equities In terms of what an interference of the right to freedom of opinion might look like, what exactly were the drafters thinking about? What were they concerned about? What were the risks to freedom of opinion? 
Yes. I actually did a deep dive in the last year into the negotiating history. And uh, it was really fascinating, the issues they were concerned about and actually how relevant they are today. But uh, I recall, for example, uh, a U.S. negotiator involved uh, in this process was very concerned that in the United States, in the U.S. Congress, under McCarthyism, uh, people were being prosecuted and uh, discriminated against because of uh, alleged views they had about communism. And this uh, U.S. negotiator felt very strongly that, you know, people should not be discriminated for uh, suspected opinions and for holding them. And he really worked hard on this language. I recall a U.K. uh, delegate was concerned that the way governments curate information could adversely affect how people form their opinions and, uh, and, and, and their ability to form opinions. And a French delegate was concerned that people would be persecuted for suspected opinions. So uh, opinions they had not even communicated. Um, so I looked, uh, when I did this deep dive in the last year on this, this right, at, at what this means in a tangible sense, um, and really concluded that this right consists of three prongs. The right not to have to reveal your opinions, right? If you are compelled to reveal opinions, uh, then you're really not enjoying that right without interference. Uh, It includes the right not to be penalized, punished for holding an opinion or a suspected opinion. If you're punished for the thoughts in your head, you're not enjoying that right without interference. And thirdly, the right not to have your opinions manipulated, right? to not have deliberate efforts that are non-consensual to undermine your mental autonomy or otherwise manipulate your thinking process. If that's happening, you're not uh, enjoying this right without interference. That um, third prong, the um, the right not to have your opinion manipulated, I mean, that raises a whole, <laughs> a whole range of issues, as I'm sure you've, you've thought through. One that springs to my mind is given the technological advances that have happened since the 1940s and 50s when these rights were decided on you know just thinking about artificial intelligence the news feed you know how we interact with social media and technology how do you think that prong that um, manipulation of our opinions um, fits into the, this new technology that we're all experiencing now? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, I actually feel all three prongs are implicated by uh, business models and artificial intelligence. But uh, to focus on your question about the right not to have your thinking process manipulated, I think there's actually two aspects to this that that raise great concerns. One is that you know social media platforms um, are are really geared towards uh, keeping us hooked on the platform, right? There's been a lot of tech insiders who have left those tech companies to tell us there were design choices that were made uh, to keep people glued to these platforms. Uh, They've used words like addiction and the creation of compulsive behavior in describing uh, what was happening. And that starts to affect mental autonomy uh, at a certain point. And that uh, opens the door to manipulation. Similarly, the fact that these platforms, and not just social media platforms, but now many others as well, are 
harvesting all of our personal information, everything we do online, um, how long we spend on a on an ebook page, what words we highlight, our browsing history, all this is compiled and uh, and used to target us with particular information that we're uh, potentially quite vulnerable to. Um, and so that has a, a risk of manipulation as well. Um, and I think both of those are, are quite profound and deeply ingrained in, um, in social media platforms and other platforms as well. Okay, so well, should, should we go to the first two then? Because I think um, I slightly unfairly constrained that question. But absolutely, um, the first two prongs are affected by these um, new platforms. Could, did you want to talk, talk that through? Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, I mentioned that the the first prong is this right not to reveal your opinions, right? Not to be compelled to reveal your opinions. And what's happening is these these business models uh, of these social media companies and other platforms and uh, websites, uh, et cetera, now are built on amassing as much information as they can about everything we do online. Um, how much time we spend on a web page, what we read, streaming services that are, you know, tabulating what we watch, what we uh, skip through, what we watch again, et cetera. Um, so all kinds of information being gathered every minute we're online. Uh, and this starts to reveal our very innermost thoughts and opinions, what you would typically you know, pre, uh, you know, kind of this online world, be reading a book and highlighting quietly and forming your thoughts. You're now doing in a way where uh, someone on the other side or something on the other side is extracting that and monetizing it and harvesting it. So you are revealing through your online activities, this inner thought process um, that's very intimate and that uh, many people are not aware was happening. With regard to the second prong, you know, this right not to be penalized for your opinions. Um, as one commentator has put it, the entire point of surveillance capitalism business models, right, that extract our data and monetize it, the entire point is to treat people differently, right? They are acquiring all this information and profiling us in order to give us this very personalized experience on the internet and to target us with different advertisements uh, and different information. So there was a recent uh, report uh, by the markup where they had done a study on an um, insurance provider that was uh, considering uh, its rates for dr different drivers. And you would think maybe they had accumulated this information uh, to assess who's a safe driver. But no, they had accumulated the information to decide who was gullible and who would pay more. That was how they were using all this inf all this profiled information. And that's just, you know, a, a small step to profiling and targeting people with discrimination for their political opinions, their religious opinions, and other um, internal thoughts. So that's why all three prongs are really raised by these surveillance capitalism business models. Yeah, and I think aside from the, the surveillance capitalism model more broadly, one of the things that's really come to the fore this year has been the debates around freedom of speech online and that kind of dynamic between hate speech and freedom of speech um, and social media platforms and the kind of question of reach of speech, sort of freedom of reach, um, as well as freedom of speech, you know, coming to a head, obviously, now 
particularly in the US, with decisions by platforms like Twitter and Facebook to block Trump and others, um, as well as Parler being dropped from app stores. And I'm just wondering what whether you think freedom of opinion could bring a new perspective to those debates of freedom of opinion and freedom of information rather than the focus on freedom of speech? Yeah, that that's um, a great question. And I, I do believe they are intimately intertwined, freedom of opinion and freedom of expression and, and really such foresight, foresight from those who were negotiating this at the UN decades ago. Um, essentially, if, you, if we take a step back and we think about it, you know, these platforms that are designed in a way which I believe undermine uh, freedom of opinion for the, the reasons I've mentioned, and they collect this information about us and they amplify it, and usually they are amplifying uh, the ins- information or the speech that is incendiary, that divides us, that's polarizing that needs to be dealt with that those design choices by the platforms and i'm very concerned about trying to tackle that that dangerous and harmful speech uh by looking solely through the freedom of expression lens right because that then empowers these platforms to have even more power over us more uh, by giving them these huge sensorial powers right the power to censor all these individual users when the underlying um, design choices are what are contributing uh, in, in, a, in a very significant way to the problems we see about um, offensive and harmful speech online. So I think examining these issues through the freedom of opinion lens clarifies uh, a way forward uh, for society and, and really triggers a need, quite frankly, for a national debate in the U.S. and internationally as well. Um, about about how these are, platforms are designed before uh, running to empower those platforms with sensorial uh, powers over us. We have a design problem in how they're they're made. Yeah, so in a way, it's it's more about the design and delivery than the actual content. Um, so not about kind of taking down one piece of content, but looking more at just the way we're receiving and the way that that this kind of information is being shared. I guess. Yes, I think it's a very important uh, element that's missing, quite frankly, from a lot of the discussion and from a lot of the, you know, kind of the media coverage often tends to be a particular content or a particular speaker. And and that's not looking at this issue more holistically, which I think is what we need to do. Just to push back on that slightly, wouldn't the, the platforms say, and I, I totally appreciate the point about censorship and the difficulty of the power that the platforms have, but wouldn't the platforms say that in terms of freedom of expression, the net, the net um, effect of these platforms is that billions of people have a, a platform to express themselves to a wide audience that they would never have had but for social media. And I guess it comes down to balance between those two aspects. But I, I think that that aspect does seem quite important in the general consideration of the effects of freedom on freedom of expression. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And uh, I hope I didn't indicate that they aren't important for, uh, for uh, expression and for uh, people bringing people together and, and doing all kinds of, of great things online. Uh, my point is just that they don't need to be structured and they should not be structured in a way that is built uh, solely on uh, harvesting data and monetizing it. That That is their business model, right? 
they are free to users because the user is the product. Um, so I, I, you know, don't want to see them go away as such. I would just like to see them allow people to speak without being surveilled 24-7 and having their, their intimate thoughts profiled and, and used to target them with information. Uh, I would like to see these social platforms uh, bring everyone together and allow them to speak without that business model underlying, uh, underlying that, that speech. So do you think if you if the debates, for example, were shifted away again from the kind of question of freedom of speech and more to look at the question of personalization um, and the freedom to receive information and, and freedom to form opinions, that that could help in, in looking at how to address these questions? Uh, yes. No, I, I would like to see that that shift happen uh, in the debate. And I think... Um, Slowly but surely, it, it seems to be happening. Um, but it's it's a it's a much it's a much more complex discussion to have than one particular user or one particular post, which is easier to have in a kind of press cycle uh, Twitter discussion that tends to happen. Right? We need to be looking at these things more holistically. And I think the the trick now is how do we trigger those broader design uh, decision discussions. Um, that said, I think there always will be freedom of expression issues at stake. And, you know, I have been advocating for some time that we should be holding the platforms to international human rights norms on, on freedom of expression, um, as advocated by the UN Special Rapporteur on freedom of expression as well. Uh, we need to, to be considering the human rights on both ends, like opinion and expression, um, but ignoring opinion has indeed led to a distorted uh, kind of international dialogue on this topic. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Can we talk about regulation? Um, Because obviously social media companies are unlikely, if not completely, um, never going to regulate themselves. But we're seeing governments and regulators around the world becoming a bit more bullish about regulating the social media space, Um, thinking about the EU Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act, the UK's um, proposed online harms bill, um, and the the Federal Trade Commission making orders for platforms how to explain how they use data to feed as information. How do you think that law and regulation um, could help to protect our right to freedom of opinion? Yeah, no, I think regulation is a, a huge uh, part of this and it needs to be carefully considered. I personally have been quite um, impressed with the work that an NGO called Ranking Digital Rights has done in a series of reports called It's the Business Model, essentially. Um, and they've recommended, I think, some very thoughtful approaches, particularly for the U.S. Uh, to adopt in terms of uh, a federal data privacy law, which is comprehensive and which we, we currently lack, quite frankly. Um, so a couple of those tangible, concrete you know, um, recommendations are 
that we would uh, limit data collection and retention for companies to the absolute minimum of what's required to engage in their service. And that we mandate that, you know, targeted advertising is not the primary purpose of the existence uh, of a company or a platform, unless that's made very clear to the users up front. You are the product here. Um, also that they disclose their data collection in a way that is much clearer, right? It is hard <laughs> to read these privacy um, notifications. I'm uh, one of my... Uh, classes this spring is is having students tackle reading these privacy policies and it's it is really challenging uh, even with a lot of thought and time to understand what they're what they're collecting um, to allow us as users to access and delete our data that would be an important part of regulation um, and to have transparency uh, by platforms in explaining how their algorithms work uh, how they are determining what we see and what we don't see, um, and how the and explain more this this ad targeting system that they have. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of it's transparency, uh, quite frankly. And and the reason, um, you know, people sometimes say, oh, well, that's not enough. But we need transparency to make good policy. We we are we are facing such a black box, such an opaque uh, system right now, that a first step and an important step. And, would, and it would be progress to get transparency into what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the regulation as well, I mean, and Adam's mentioned, you know, various developments in the UK, in the EU and, and in the US. You know, how do you think regulation can tackle these issues cross-border? And do you think there are different approaches to these questions of, of freedom of opinion and, and how they should be protected in different geographical zones, for example? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and um, I guess just brainstorming about it, I have two two concerns. Um, one is, you know, Amnesty International raised in a recent report that these data troves have become quite interesting to numerous governments. Um, so, whereas there might have been an appetite to regulate earlier on. Uh, for many governments, they now want access to these uh, data troves rather than uh, regulating them out of existence. So I do have some concerns about how negotiations might play out at the international level on this at this point in our in our uh, work on this topic. Um, and then kind of watching how this is playing out in the United States, it's really hard to get this pr federal privacy legislation passed. And uh, NGOs have expressed concerns that attempts to pass that federal data privacy legislation uh, is actually being kind of usurped by the companies um, to lower the bar that individual states have passed on privacy. Um, so there's a real concern about this even happening at a national level in the U.S. versus uh, at an international level. So you know, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have easy solutions here, but I, I see a lot of, of pitfalls that I think advocates in this space need to strategize together about and, and pay particular attention to. And I think also when you move beyond the, the sort of big platforms and the, the obvious stories like sort of Twitter and Facebook or whatever, well, if you're looking at things like advertising that's being delivered through apps, you know, it also gets very complicated if that advertising or those apps are coming from a completely 
other jurisdiction where you've got no chance of enforcement and regulation. Um, and so I think that raises a lot of questions as well. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on the kind of wider questions of how how you cope with this kind of uh, borderless access that we have in the digital space on these issues. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Susie. I, I don't think I have wonderful <laughs> insights into how to answer that, but... Um... I will. Don't worry, I'm not sure there are answers <laughs> that, are, that are obvious right now. <laughs> but but I will express that I hope at the very least um, employers, schools, um, others that mandate their employees and that mandate students and staff access certain apps to to be a student to engage in their jobs consider these options because this is are these problems. Because this is happening all the time that as a student or as a staff member or as an employee, you have to engage with certain apps as part of your job, as part of being a student. And this is a real problem that, you know, those making those rules need to consider what they are asking people to give up in terms of personal data that they may forever lose control of. I think that's all we've got time for. That was really, really interesting discussion. That's been really, really interesting, um, teasing out some of the questions. Thank you, guys. So thank you very much to my co-host, Susie Allegre, to Evelyn Aswad, professor at the University of Oklahoma. We're also grateful to the Office of the OSCE Representative on Freedom of the Media for the grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression project, which supports this series. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You can join the Criminal Justice and Human Rights Pathway or the Politics and Human Rights Pathway and deepen your knowledge and understanding of their challenging interactions, as well as being in the, an environment that champions social justice. If you want show notes or to support the podcast by giving a few pounds a month, go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. My name is Adam Wagner. This has been the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>